four miles short of Land's End, so that's kind of on the, the western peninsula of Cornwall, on the very western tip. There is the greatest theatre in the world. Now normally, when you build a venue for the arts, you build it where the people are. You know, we've got the Hof here in the centre of town, haven't we? And, and it becomes accessible and, and, and uh, populated by people that turn up. Um, and if you go to London, you will find there are particular areas where there are lots of theatres. The, uh, even Shakespeare's Globe Theatre is in the centre, right by the Thames. The problem is, when you have a theatre or venue for the arts in the middle, you end up having to shut out all the noise. You have to shut out all the urban life, all the uh, noise of the engines and the people and uh, commerce. The Minac Theatre uh, by Porth Curnow is different. It is not in the middle of urban life and it is situated wonderfully, as you hopefully can see, on this rather attractive uh, uh, picture. It is on the edge of a cliff. And while every other venue has to kind of shut the outside world out, Minak invites you to gaze at it. My family and I uh, uh, went there uh, a couple of years ago and we watched uh, Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. Uh, extraordinary play and perfect for this sort of setting. And we sat uh, right up here, the, uh, uh, the seats go right up, and we sat up here uh, with a load of other uh, families, and um, we were spellbound by this tale of ships and storms, of magic and romance. And it was kind of a one-man band who played everything, uh, extraordinary actor, um, but the wonderful thing is, because it was here, the setting enhanced the story rather than detracted from it. You weren't hearing taxis beep and people shouting. You weren't hearing anything else other than this glorious vista. And so the waves of the Atlantic, the heat of the sun, the, uh, the vista of the shoreline, um, and the, the salt in the air, suddenly it made every scene epic. Suddenly, the, the whole experience was enhanced by the outside being let in. Now, we, let me be very clear. God isn't an actor. An actor is someone that pretends to be someone else. God never pretends to be someone else. However, I think he is an extraordinary director of events. He, now, he knows how to put on a show. He knows how to produce and execute a story that is worth telling over and over and over again. Today, we start the supernatural showdown between the God of Israel in one corner and the gods of Egypt in the other. It is a story that the Israelites were told to tell again and again to tell when they are sitting down to eat with their family, to tell when they are walking. It is an important milestone in Israel's history in finding out who their God was and what plans he had for them. So I want you to have your hearts not just 
your eyes glaze over at a familiar account. But I want your hearts again to uh, experience the highs and lows of this drama, of the anguish, of the horror, of the hardness of heart, of the high stakes of the story of the Exodus. If God uh, was a sort of a, uh, just a small town English director, he would be putting this play on at the Minic Theatre, but it is far better uh, than that, and we're going to explore that today. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 7. Yes, we've made it all the way to chapter 7. It is really exciting to have got so far in this story. Can you hear that? That's exactly what I'm talking about. That, that's why the theatre is in the middle of nowhere, so you don't hear boy racers going up and down the road. So it says this in Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, um, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. Everyone say staff. Staff. Excellent. Um, throw it down and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Everyone say snake. snake. Excellent. I never noticed this before until I read it this time. Previous to this account, it was Moses' staff that was thrown down and became a snake. And that was the thing that the Israelites were to be impressed by and it caused them to worship God and it caused them to bless Moses and uh, Aaron in their confrontation with Pharaoh. This time, it is different. Moses' older brother, his staff, is to be used for this incredible encounter. It is his staff that is going to be used by God in a supernatural way. And it is this staff, if you know your uh, Bibles, if you are aware of your Old Testament history, it is this staff, the rod of Aaron, that the Israelites will keep and treasure. And when Indiana Jones goes searching for the, uh, uh, the lost ark, it is the uh, rod of Aaron that he would expect to find in there. This rod of Aaron becomes like this holy uh, uh, spiritual relic that the Israelites were to cherish. And so we find this uh, uh, changing up in gear. And so Moses and Aaron, brothers, one that's lived in the wilderness for 40 years and the other who has lived in slavery during that time, they come to the king, the person who has uh, applied that save slavery again and again. This pharaoh who is now sur surrounded by his advisors. And these are not the uh, uh, weak-willed, liberal namby-pambies of uh, the uh, sort of metropolitan. These are hard guys who know what it is to rule an empire and enforce the uh, uh, Pharaoh's will. And Moses and Aaron come in. And in the middle of all this power and authority, without a word it seems, 
And so if you ever wonder if God loves a drama, he does indeed. Without a word, these two Israelites come down and Aaron throws down his stick. Now the NIV, I don't know what your translation you're using this morning, the NIV says snake. Does anyone's Bible have a different word there? Snake, everyone's sort of agreeing. I want to introduce you to the word used for snake here. Everyone say tan. 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 So that, that's the first part. And neen. It's like a, a nine but with two e's in. So everyone say neen. So say tan neen. Excellent. So that is the Hebrew word used here. I'm not sure it should be used and translated as snake. If you've got a Bible, turn to... Uh, Psalm 74. There's some great moments in Job that I almost wanted to, but if I had my way, we would keep referring to Job all the time, and that might get a bit tiresome. So Psalm 74 says this. Psalm 74, verse 12. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. You're like, yeah, I can see that in a worship song. Have you ever sung this? This is what I'm hoping worship writers are going to incorporate. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. And the word monster there is that word you just uh, uh, recited back to me, tan in. It's the same word. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it its food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours is also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made summer and winter. I hope you can hear the majesty and sovereignty and glory of God in those words. Now this sermon is three, four weeks late. It was supposed to be done kind of at the end of October, but sadly I contracted COVID and then we had uh, Fidget Church. But when this sermon was supposed to happen, this film was at the top of every box office rankings. It was the one bringing all the cash. Uh, it is June by Frank Herbert. So it's, uh, the, the book is a sci-fi book. Um, it's kind of like Lord of the Rings, if you like, spaceships and that sort of things. So it's an epic, goes on for, the book goes on forever and then there's even more books. So Hollywood's got a, 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 um, a lot to uh, work with. Um, so this June, uh, uh, a few weeks back, was uh, uh, top of the bill. Um, and it's really helpful to my what I wanted to say uh, this morning. And uh, so I'm going to uh, uh, take you to the planet of Arrakis. We have the two lovers, Paul and Jessica. They're stranded on a vast desert wasteland. And there is a tannin below the surface. I've scrubbed out some of the boring bits. So if you're looking to quote me verse by verse... Um, it's not verse by verse. It's a sort of general picture to keep the story going. Behind them, he heard a hissing, like the wind, like a riptide, but where there was no water. Run, Jessica screamed. Paul, run, and they ran. 
Drum sound boomed beneath their feet. Sand and gravel dragged at where their feet fell. And the hissing approach of the worm was storm sound that grew around them. Jessica stumbled to her knees. All she could think about was the fatigue and the sound and the terror and Paul dragged her up and they ran on hand in hand. Finally, rock. She felt it through her feet. The shock of unresisting surface gained new strength from the firmer footing. And then a deep crack stretched its vertical shadow upward into the cliff ahead of them and they sprinted for it and crowded into that narrow hole behind them the sound of the worm's passage stopped jessica and paul turned and peered out into the desert where the dunes began perhaps 50 meters away at the foot of a rock beach a silver gray curve broached from the desert Sended rivers of sand and dust cascading all around. It lifted higher and resolved into a giant questioning mouth. If you haven't seen the film, you're in for a spoiler alert. It was round, black hole with edges glistening in the moonlight. The mouth snaked towards the narrow crack where Paul and Jessica huddled. Cinnamon yelled in their nostrils. Moonlight flashed from the crystal teeth. Back and forth the great mouth wove. Paul stilled his breathing. Jessica crouched, staring. It took intense concentration of a Benny Gesserit training. She's like a ninja. Uh, to put down the primal fears, subduing a race memory fear that threatened to fill her mind. And this is the very first moment in this story when uh, this guy, Paul, the hero, sees the monster beneath the surface. And Paul found himself registering every available aspect of the thing that lifted from the sand there, seeking him. Its mouth, was some 80 metres in diameter, crystal teeth with the curved shape of knives glinting round the rim, the bellows breath of cinnamon, subtle acids. This worm blotted out the moonlight as it crushed the rocks above them. These one kilometre long sandworms are intrinsic to the story of Dune. They bring mystery, they bring surprise, and they bring fear in the hearts of all that behold them. And it makes for a thrilling drama. If it wasn't for the worms, the, uh, the planet Arrakis would be like a nice sandy beachy holiday. But these worms bring drama and fear and terror and action into it. I don't want to pretend that Aaron's rod just became some sort of Arrakis sandworm, but I don't think the Hebrew text just wants us to imagine the meandering slow worms that we see in Buckham Park. I don't think when the Hebrew word tanin is used here that they just want us to imagine something slithering on the floor uh, that looks uh, benign and pathetic. The word is deliberately used here to create 
an impression of something fearful. Yahweh takes the rod of Aaron in the halls of Pharaoh and brings a wild monster into their midst. And the point of this is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, brings not just a magic trick, a kid's party trick into the halls of Egypt, but he brings surprise, fear and wonder. That was what uh, um, this Rod's transformation was supposed to achieve. That is what God wanted the Egyptians to perceive. It is a moment of revelation. God is saying, I am the God of transformation. I am the God of wonder. I am the God that commands the paths of Leviathans and Tannines. I am a God to be wondered at. I'm not domesticated. I'm not tame. I'm not someone that you can defeat. I'm someone you are to live in awe of. And that is most beautifully represented to us in Jesus. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 8. Even after exposing him to so many uh, Bible stories, this is my uh, middle son's favourite Bible story and it says this in verse 23 in Luke chapter 8 as the disciples sailed Jesus fell asleep now it says a squall here and again our English language I think lets us down if we're looking for grandeur if you look up the, that word um, if you look up the Greek word used there it's whirlwind or, and it works right, quite well with my introduction, tempest. A whirlwind came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped. And they were, and I'm thankful for this word, they were in great danger. This is not like the tailors having a boating trip in Tilgate and one of the kids gets up and wobbles the boat and, oh dear, we might be in a bit of trouble. This is experienced fishermen facing a whirlwind and facing death. The disciples went and woke Jesus up saying, Master, Master, we are going to drown. And Jesus, the son of the great high God, the son of the father who turned that stick into a monster, he got up and he spoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waters. He spoke to the elements. And the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible says they recognised his voice. And what did the storm, the whirlwind, the tempest do? It obeyed. The storm subsided and all was calm. We've been learning in our home groups that Jesus is gentle and lowly. He is compassionate to the sinner. But I don't want you to have a one-dimensional view of Jesus and not see that he is his father's son, that he is the Lord of storms. The father, son and spirit are not domesticated, tame animals that somehow our religion can encapsulate in an hour and a half's meeting. This 
experience this morning is not the sum total of the God we worship. He, God, the Father, Son and Spirit is fearsome and wondrous to behold. When we sang earlier of the beams of the sun being his, that is exactly uh, what we need to take in this morning. I want you, when you pray, when you worship, when you conceive of your life, to see that the God you serve is the God of monsters and storms and that you can come to him with a reverence and a wonder and a worship that should take your breath away. Now all this talk of monsters in Pharaoh's courts, you'd be forgiven for imagining that that was it. If someone with a stick that turned into a monster came to most courts around the world, they'd be like, yep, can't deal with that, off you go. But this is not the case for Israel. The drama increases. You think that the first act is something that you will never see the likes of again. Well, God says, well, let me take it up a notch. Turn to Exodus chapter 7 again. See, it goes on. Exodus chapter 7, verse 11. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake or a tannin, a monster. I want you to remember now, Moses and Aaron are not impressive figures in this uh, scene. They do not have lustrous robes of gold and ornate colours. They are the peasants. They are the inferior race. Egypt is their commander. Egypt is their uh, um, ruler. They are foreigners and they are enslaved. If there was the vote in that place, they would not have it. It is like broke Syrian refugees coming along in the grafts and then crawling into Westminster Palace, coming to the Houses of Parliament and then having a showdown with Boris and his cronies. It is an unequal battle. One side has all the prestige, all the power, all the experience. And these other guys... They are upstarts. There is nothing to recommend them. They look feeble and weak. They probably uh, uh, looked impoverished. And Pharaoh's faced with these refugees. He is faced with some unknown majestic scaly monster. And what does Pharaoh do? He doesn't listen to them. He falls back on his experts. He falls back on the best 
that his empire has to offer. The most highly trained in this polytheistic religion of ancient Egypt. And so he goes, help me. And the Magi step forward and the magicians step forward and the sorcerers step forward and the experts in the occult from the area step forward. And suddenly, it is almost like a comedy now because we've got one snake from one stick come about and then suddenly all the other magi they add to this scene of um horror and comedy suddenly the whole hall is filled up with lots of monstrous beasts lots of snakes it's almost ridiculous what is going on suddenly this scene that was so sedate and ordered before becomes this writhing pit of reptiles. And it's funny, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed, but God's enemies have an ability to produce counterfeit miracles. It has always happened. We think God does something amazing and then something happens by uh, an opposition force and it causes us confusion we're not quite sure where to stand we pray and see god heal and then someone some expert doctor comes up with a cure and we're like well where should i put my faith or uh, we pray and see a healing and then uh, uh, some spiritualist or seance expert or some other faith comes with an answer to and we go well which do we believe whose information should we take in and rely on turn to Acts chapter 8 it says this it's another confrontation now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, and he amazed all the people of Samaria. I'm not talking about rabbits out of hats. I'm talking about something a little bit more diabolical. And Simon boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention, and he exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God, and they followed him because he had amazed them for such a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, the evangelist from God, he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself believed and was baptized. And what did he do? He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. We find Simon and Philip in this region both doing something incredible. Everyone is amazed at both of them. Simon does stuff and he goes, look at me. I am impressive. These things that I'm achieving in your midst, they show that I am brilliant. But Philip, he does amazing things, but he points to Jesus. And Jesus brings salvation and we have this contrast both brought something amazing to the table both this uh, occultist 
and this Christian did stuff that people couldn't explain. And it was up to them which way they went. Who did they listen to? Well, if you listened to Simon, he would point you to himself and go, you need to pay homage to me because I am the great power of God. But Philip would go, no, no, don't listen to me. I want to point you to Jesus. I want to point you to the Lord of the storms. I want to point you to the healer of the afflicted. I want to tell you about Jesus who restored people to health, who raised the dead, who in the end died to save the sinner from their sins. You and I, on a daily basis, we are invited to put our trust in stuff. We're invited to put our trust in the state, in science, in human knowledge, in the God of Islam, in Hinduism, uh, in uh, a variety of self-help approaches. All of these things are saying, we can do something for you if you listen to us and pay homage to us. But Christianity and Christians say, well, you may see something wonderful achieved through us, but let us point you to someone that is far and above all these other ideas and approaches, far above all these gods. It is Jesus, this Jesus who is both Lord of the storm and lover of sinners. He is the one person that you come to and the more you know about him, the more you want to know. All these offers of information and strategy and help are out there. But Jesus is the only one that when you reach the centre of the revelation, you go, I want to know more. This is better than I expected. I think this is uh, drawing to an end now. Let's read the uh, final bit of today's passage, Exodus chapter 7. I can certainly recommend searching Google Photos for uh, pictures of snakes eating things. There is such a wide variety of stuff that they devour. There was a really good one of them eating a crocodile, uh, uh, but it wasn't quite the definition I needed. Um, Exodus chapter 7 verse 12 says this. So we've got this horrific comedy scene of Pharaoh's courts being filled with writhing snakes and a bunch of people looking very worried at what on earth was going to happen next. And it says this, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. The immigrant, their beast, feasts on all the other beasts in the court of Pharaoh. This is grotesque and nasty. This is a picture that probably Attenborough is not going to put on his next documentary. One uh, beast devouring all the others in the room and there's blood and there's guts and there's noise. 
the miracle of Israel devours the signs of empire. Israel, this puny little nation that had no power, its rod in that uh, um, stadium beats all the others. And the message of power is given the God of Israel is greater than the God and gods of Egypt. But you know what? And so this tests your theology, or it should do. There's this incredible demonstration of power. And God touches Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh doesn't give in. It is not merely saying that Pharaoh resists this miracle. God squeezes him so that Pharaoh goes, okay, I am not going to give in to the signs of this miracle. And why does he do that? Because there are bigger ones ahead. This uh, monster parade is only the start of a series of miracles that will blow the minds of Israel and finish off Egypt. And so we have this moment where you have these miracles, Pharaoh's heart is turned and darkness and misery are destined to stay in Egypt for a moment more. Israel will still be enslaved despite all this drama going on. But in the end, Israel will have this victory. Israel will know a rescue story. And Egypt will be undone like never before. I want to reassure you that sometimes we get to see great things done by God. But we don't see the breakthroughs we imagine them to lead to. We see him step forward and we thank him for the miracle of intervention, but we don't see the result that we expected. And Israel's story right here says, take courage. This is another stepping stone to greater wonders that God will perform. There will be a finale that will be worth it. And I really didn't want to end it there. But I want to uh, increase our vision of God. I want us to take in again his grandeur and spectacular spectacular nature. I want us to uh, take in something of God's victory. I want us to see that the little skirmishes that we may fail, we fail at, have a bigger picture that is worth living for. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Revelation 19 and I'm just going to read a passage and then we're done. And this Jesus says this in John, Now I've told you these things so that in me you have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Can I have an amen to that? In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Can I have a hallelujah? Hallelujah! Excellent. So Revelation chapter 19. I wanted to end on the highest possible note. And the highest possible note is the second coming of Jesus. So Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 and I saw heaven standing open close your eyes just take this in and I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true anyone know his name anyone know his name Jesus. anyone know his name Jesus. that's right 
With justice he judges and wages war. A little far away from the Israelite carpenter, isn't he? His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. That is a wardrobe impossibility, but this is revelation. This is something beyond mere how many crowns can he topple on his head. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. If you are still thinking in literal English, you're going to struggle. I want you to think of poetry. I want to think of sci-fi. I want you to uh, uh, broaden your minds to uh, imagery that allows swords to come out of mouths without it falling over. And which to strike down nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. An angel standing in the sun. How does that work? Don't worry about it. Go with it. And he cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the air, Come, gather together for the great supper of God. And you're like, well, perhaps we've got some old man with some bird seed going to feed these birds of the air that the angels called. Not a bit of it. If, if you want theatre, if you want drama, if you want the uh, grim arrival of Jesus, this is what it involves. Come gather together for the great supper of God. You will not eat bird seed tonight. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and the mighty, of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free, slave, great and small. And if you don't like bloodshed, you're going to struggle with that. But this is the uh, spectacle of God's final victory. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. And if you are struggling with why life is hard, you are part of the righteous army of God. You are being waged war on by the forces of this earth, by the forces that will be defeated by Jesus, by the forces that, whose carcasses will be laid open for the birds of the air to devour. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to wage war against the rider and the horse and his army, which you and I, if we love Jesus, we number amongst. But the beast was captured. Oh no. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. Suddenly, their biggest characters have fallen down at the first hurdle. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And it is not covid do not pretend that it is a vaccine or something else. This is a much bigger picture than conspiracy theories about vaccines. The two of these were thrown alive into a fiery fake lake of burning sulphur. This is not nice and comfortable. If you are like, oh, I'm not sure how to, to reconcile this with Jesus, my gentle saviour, that is the point. That is the point to broaden your mind, to give you a picture of God Almighty that does not fit into a nice little box. That suddenly little lined up chairs in a Sunday morning 
seem slightly incongruous when we're worshipping the Lord on this white charger. And the rest were killed with the sword, coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged them on their flesh. And we're going to finish there. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was meek and mild. We thank you that he <coughs> invited in the sinner and the failure and the person that wasn't good enough. We thank you that there is no standard too low. That means that we can't get into the kingdom of God. And Heavenly Father, I pray also that we would lift and raise our understanding of you. Lord God, I thank you that you are worried about the small things. But Lord God, well, you are sovereign that you are the creator of the sunbeams, that your angel stands on the sun, that when Jesus comes, he's going to have swords coming out of his mouth and crowns coming off his head. God, we thank you uh, that the victory is yours, that in the end, every failure that we've experienced, every time that you've hardened the heart of Pharaoh, that in the end... The victory is going to be worth it and it is going to be more categorical and more wonderful and more complete than we can possibly imagine. Heavenly Father, help our worship. Help us lift you up in praise. Help us see you for as you are. Lord God, I pray that we would not get distracted or deceived by counterfeit miracles and counterfeit methods that distract us from your Lordship. And Lord God, give us again a sense of of John's apocalyptic end times sight that we see you for who you are and the beauty and strength and magnitude that you exude. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.